Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Alan Parker said, sometimes... With the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. The Britflix podcast comes absolutely free, so can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen, and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters, which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it and you're done. And it'll be really helpful, trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the Britflix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type Britflix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time in your hands, why not reviewers as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today's guest is former editor of uh, BFI International Film Magazine, Sight and Sound, Nick James. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Good. Now, former former sounds like... Uh, is... Um, is after 21 years of being at the helm, so it's a hell of a hell of a time to be in there. And you were you were deputy editor for two years before that, so you kind of are you've got your finger on the kind of pulse of what's been happening with UK film and international film, for that matter. Yeah, it, it was a bit like that, especially in the early years. I was very, very, very involved in what was going on in British film. Hmm. Um, you know, it was kind of the thing that drove me for a while yeah. uh, was, uh, you know, what was going on in the industry and how it would turn out. Um, but once the BFI kind of took over from the film council, which we might get into later, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was then I, I sort of could relax about that because it was no longer a kind of issue so much because I was within the organization that was making the films, you know, got you, got you. So, um, it's it's we're going to do uh, regular listeners to the Britflix podcast will know I do five great British horror films, but given given your role and the time you've done, it seemed a great way to sort of go. Okay, let's do five great British horror films of the last great British films of the last twenty one years during your tenure, which I think is a really exciting thing. But before we do that, I just want to do a quick sort of edited highlights of twenty one years. Now this isn't obviously of you this is of the film industry and i and i've been there's kind of a little bit of kind of technology and the muscle in film that i think that with the sort of the headlines that grabbed me so i'll just read them out and then we can sort of react to it in a in a in a way so bear with me so in dvd comes out in 97 
which yeah. which I didn't realise. I thought it was earlier than that. So that's so there you are. You're on. You're on. Your your arrived with that. Yeah. Yeah, you arrived with that, and then yeah. it, but it took till 2008 for the DVD to take over VHS, which is in today's technological world, that's an age. <laughs> it certainly is, and, and you know, for me, actually, video is the more important uh, invention because it completely changed what the film criticism profession is because you could actually rewatch the films. Exactly. Yeah. Before, you know, before you had that kind of holy moment where you saw the film and then after that you had to rely on your memory and notes and that's it. You didn't get a chance to watch it again. Indeed. Well, so, so we've got, we've got then in 98 Netflix online DVD subscription begins. UK film council launched in 2000. Blu-ray came out in 2003. Netflix streaming and BB. BBC iPlayer was launched in 2007. 2008 was the phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Iron Man and Incredible Hulk. 22 films later this year, where we get the bloody... Oh, that's my bias there. We get Endgame happening. <laughs> um, but then uh, 2009, 2009, Marvel gets bought by Disney, which is going to be a pattern forming soon. Uh, Amazon Prime and Curzon On Demand in 2011. Plus, the UK Film Council closes and many functions move to BFI, as you mentioned. Um, Disney buys Lucasfilms in 2012. BFI Player is launched in 2014. Disney buys Fox in 2019. And I'm sure there's a whole host of other things that have happened, but they were some of the kind of significant things. Now, um, you've sort of worked looking at and films coming out during that period and also how the people who operate as the business side of it have responded to some of those and more. So for you, what innovation or gain was made during that time that makes you happy and confident for film's future? Well, I think that has to be that the, the, the filmmaking process itself got very much cheaper. Mm -hmm. So far more people got access to the means of production. You know, when I first started in film, you had to have a union card to get anywhere near uh, making films. Right. Um, uh, and I've seen that completely break down so that really, you know, all of us are filmmakers now, just as all of us are artists now. Mm. Arguably. Um, and uh, I think that that is a tremendously kind of loosening thing. Of course, it does have a, a negative byproduct, which is way too many films to watch and process and indeed try to distribute, mm. which of course, uh, is kind of messing up the the, the economy of, 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 of cinema, particularly hard actually on the foreign language films that Sight and Sound has been particularly keen on promoting over the years. Yeah. Um, so, but I still think that that is a major real plus point that, that uh, all sorts of people can make films now. And indeed, we, I think we really do have a massive variety of kinds of film now Yeah. that we, we didn't have when it was much more under the control of kind of structures. Got you. So in the opposite end of that question then would be what, what do you think we've lost that you, that you might be lamenting 10, 10, 10 years from now or even already lamenting or think maybe to the detriment of film's future? I don't know. I think possibly there's, there's a sort of magic which, you know, nostalgists go on about, about real film going through a real projector and the swirl of grain and, uh, and all the actual aesthetics of the analogue means of 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 showing films yeah so you can still experience in small pockets here and there but for most people it's gone it's a very kind of uh romantic and and, and ivory tower perspective really because 
for a very long time, most people have watched most films on their television sets in truth rather yeah. than even in the cinema. So it's a kind of ludicrously uh, specialist perspective. But I do really think it, like, like Tarantino and many other directors, I do think it's a special experience and I do think it's different from digital. Um, and I kind of regret that its time is probably on a clock. Yes, but but and you mentioned the the sort of the holy the, the the holy reverent experience of being in a cinema. I don't think I don't think that's been lost, has it? No, I think I think that we will still go to the cinema in you know in groups and watch things in the dark. At least I hope so. Mm. I do worry that the disnification of everything is going to threaten that in the long run because I think that mass audiences for these kind of uh, you know, these franchises uh, that are being put together to last forever. I think, you know, eventually a generation is going to come along that says, we don't want this. Uh, we want something else. Uh, and the Hollywood's uh, Hollywood will no longer be able to supply, you know, uh, a, a broader range of stuff because it will be so set in its ways in producing these mass market franchise uh, adventure films. Yeah. In the Marvel Universe and all the others, Game of Thrones, etc. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just think that that is um, a bit of a worry. But I, I, I think that any industry that has produced the magnificent films that came out last year, like Roma and Hunger and all these, you know, absolutely amazing films that yeah. year was a particularly strong year. And if those films are continuing to be produced, you can't say that we're in trouble in, in any sense. Now, the other thing that happened, and I couldn't really chart this as a, as a, as a, as a trend, but um, with the advent of social media, the role of the critic has changed, if not diminished. I mean, Sight Sounds a very specialist magazine, but, but in terms of, every, you said everyone's an artist, everyone's a filmmaker, but in a way, everyone's a critic now as well. How do you feel about that sort of change? Because 21 years ago, you went and looked for what people thought about film <laughs> and you might get a letters yeah. page. <laughs> well, actually, it's got it's it's actually gotten better. Mm. The, the, the slough of this thing, you know, it was started in 2008 when the American newspapers started to sack their critics in large numbers because yeah. of digital. They were terrified of digital and they all needed to digitize. And, uh, you know, the first victims were the film critics and actually other journalists followed afterwards, but mm. like film critics with the canaries in the coal mine. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's got, it, it went to a point where suddenly it's true that the industry and many people thought that there was really no difference between the, the critics you paid for and the bloggers online. But actually in recent years, over the last five or six years, it, people who are paid to write film criticism have tended to become trusted again as opposed to people who just write for free. Um, it's really interesting that that happens. Um, it's a really interesting case in India where actually newspapers still thrive, paper newspapers, uh, where um, nobody in India apparently trusts the internet at all or anything that anybody writes on it. So they only trust printed newspaper reviews of films. God, I'd, um, love, I'd love to so, return to that age. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I don't think it's as uh, under threat as I thought it was two or three years ago. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I come from a more there's of a... There's a cadre of people in their 20s who write for me who seem to be surviving. I'm not saying that there's no way they're making, they're ever going to be rich, but they're surviving and they love their jobs. And, you know, it, it, it's really great that they're there. 
No, and I think and I think it it it, it requires an authoritative voice. Um, one thing that I I saw happen when the the blogging thing became a sort of growth, you know, it was burgeoning had a burgeoning presence was how much everything was in the first person and not about the thing they were talking about. It was almost like I was knowing more about how someone's journey to the cinema was than I was about the film. <laughs> well, actually, you know, I think that's one of the really big changes that have happened to film criticism, which is a really interesting one. Uh, and I, I'm really not sure how I feel about it, which is that that question of reserve, of having a distance, of viewing a film with a, as a critic with a certain amount of distance from what you're watching has been blown away by the internet critics. Mm. And in fact, now most of the mainstream critics who write for the newspapers uh, involve their own emotionalism in how they respond to the film on a personal level in the same way that the, the bloggers do. I still, that, I'm going to say, I still can't get over when, when, when you hear um, uh, somebody walk out of a cinema at Cannes and tweet what they thought. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, and in fact, I'm I'm as guilty of that as anyone. There was a period when we all went crazy tweeting about films the minute we came out as a kind of competition, yeah, you know, for who could be there first. And I was doing it too. And in fact, you know, I kind of quite enjoyed trying to sum up something clever and smart and show offy in 140 characters <laughs> about something I've just seen. But it, I grew tired of it very quickly, and in fact, I don't do it at all now. Well, look, sir, that's a, that's a kind of nice look at the kind of period that you, you were working in. Now, let's look at the, some of the content. So you've given me five great British films for us to discuss. Um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll follow your lead, as it were. Um, sure. For the, uh, for the benefit of the listener who, didn't, who wouldn't have heard my preamble, and, and as a change in, uh, in tone, because for the horror films, listeners will know Out Demons Out. And bizarrely, for the listener, uh, Nick, Nick's not a big fan of, uh, of Edgar Brown Band. <laughs> Which wasn't, which wasn't the reaction. Well, I wasn't when I was 18. Fair enough, fair enough. I haven't listened to them since, so. <laughs> but uh, we're going we're gonna to be interrupted at five minutes while we discuss a film with... By the Seaside. So that's, yep. that'll be us. When, uh, uh, obviously, there'll be the, the politeness of allowing a thought to be finished and the like. But, uh, but yeah, we'll use that so we, we, we spend an equal amount of time on each film. So, each, so we've got five films, five minutes. They're all British films, and they've all been released in the last 21 years during Nick's tenure as editor of Sight and Sound. So first one is 1997's uh, Nil by Mouth, directed by Gary Oldman. Do you want to... Uh, Start as offers yep. to what made you choose that one as a, as one of your five great British films. Well, of course, this business of choosing five films from twenty one years is a, an obscene thing to to do to anybody. <laughs> Art um, is not a competitive sport, is it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nil by mouth, you know, uh, is for me one of the truest films about working class life. Because even though I'm a middle class person now, I actually came from a council estate background mm -hmm. back in the day. And um, for me, this is the film that came closest, sadly, to my own experience uh, of my family. Uh, I had a not very pleasant father. Um, and Ray Winston's portrayal of Raymond in this film <laughs> comes scarily close to really. Well, my father wasn't as violent as mm -hmm. Raymond was in this film. He was more psychologically violent than physically violent. Um, that's the personal angle on it. Yeah. Um, I also think it's you know, it kind of stands because I haven't chosen any Ken Loach films. It it stands for a, a certain view of uh, working class cinema and the, and the and the 
the, the problems that people at the bottom end of the scale face. Um, and there are many other films I could have chosen in its place. But this, I just think it has the authenticity uh, of, of and also the courage to, to portray the working class family as you know, quite a negative situation. A lot of filmmakers who approach um, such families want to sort of slightly romanticize them and, you know, make them feel like, you know, we're all in this together kind of yeah. feeling. Um, and I find that slightly untrue some of the time, not with all of them, but with, with one or two films, it, it doesn't feel quite right. It feels a bit patronizing actually. Yeah. Uh, and this film really felt to me authentically, in fact, gut wrenchingly real. Yeah. Uh, way that, um, that some others don't. It, it um, never it never preaches or, or glamorizes the situation, does it? No, it never does, and it never tries to make out that you know um, they've all got hearts of gold. You know, uh, <laughs> some of them have, mm. but um, uh, you know it, it it's it, that's that's the, that's what impressed me about it. And of course, the performances are fantastic, and it was great to see Kathy Burke on television the other day talking about beauty because we see her so rarely these days and she's great as Valerie in this mm. and Ray Winston is absolutely astonishing as the father Ray and Charlie Creed Miles as, as the, the son Billy who gets messed up on drugs is pretty astonishing too uh, I think it was for me at the time you know I was uh, a new fairly new father my daughter was five right and this was me reflecting on you know how not to be a family yeah <laughs> I saw that film um, so for me, it was a really good reminder of where I came from um, and how I could do better in a way. Um, and that's that's what's really visceral about the film. And of course, you know, it, it's a pretty grim uh, run through the experience of these people um, and how how the problems just keep on coming and their attitudes are so leery. There's so much a part of what. Um, middle class people really don't want to mix with working class people for, you know, this kind of genuine kind of cutting, nasty, uh, uh, often uh, you know, racist uh, um, and homophobic kind of viewpoints, um, which, you know, I, I certainly experienced in my childhood. And it's, of course, it doesn't apply to everybody. It's just these particular group of people had this particular set of problems and those were beautifully realised by Gary, who sadly has never made another film since. There's, um, there's also that element of almost like, I mean, obviously you, you might be able to tell from, uh, from accent. I didn't, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't go to public school myself, you know. And, yeah. uh, and while I might live a middle class lifestyle now, certainly I grew up in North Manchester. And, and what I loved about Nil by Mouth was, was obviously the, the wasn't, was nothing to do with the grimness, but the, uh, the idea of just fleeting opportunity being actually the moment of happiness, you know, something good happening, no matter how minor, is actually, is that could be the best thing that week, that month. So you, you do it. If that means just getting, having enough money to get drunk, that's your opportunity. And I, I thought, think that's right. I think that sort of carpe diem in the moment, you know, we're living every day as it happens, mm. is really brilliantly represented in this film. Um, and the way things change, you know, uh, is very subtly done, you know, uh, they do sort of try to pull together after the dreadful incidents that happen mm. uh, in a much more realistic way than, you know, some of the more mechanistic films in this genre do. Indeed, uh, yes. There's not, there's no, the blunt force isn't the story, is it? The blunt force is the emotion. That's right. That's right. 
Right then, sir, that's the, our first five minutes up. Uh, and just that was that, that, the nil by mouth was feet. Well, I could, I was, I, I tried as well to try and look at Sight and Sounds 10, 10 for the year each year. Yeah. Now, 1987, there wasn't, I couldn't find a published uh, year, but there was a retrospective looking back on 20 years, 20 years ago from 2017, of which nil by mouth featured in that. That's right. Well, we didn't start doing a yearly poll until later. Yeah. So, so from now, what I was going to say from now on, I yeah. can, uh, I you can, can position where they, yeah. where they, where they figured. Yes. Indeed, indeed. So first, we're going to jump forward to 2008 to yeah. Steve McQueen's Hunger, which it won't surprise you to learn, because I imagine at the time it was impossible to not know, was number one in the Sight and Sound top ten for the year. Um, I, I get the impression from the notes in the article that um, in, in the sort of summing up that everybody voted for it, I'm guessing, um, in their five that they submitted. Of your, It's 50 critics. Is it 50 critics all the time? Is that what's... No, it's not like that. I don't know what we did that year. We've kind of it's adapted over time. Mm. Um, these days, we we ask, you know, a kind of solid group of people we trust, and it's about hundred, I think, these days. Um, and it was it was one of three UK films in the top ten that year. So you also had Of Time in the City, Terence Davis, and yeah. Mike Lee's Happy Go Lucky. So five. Well, there minutes... you are. Both Mike Lee and. Terence Davis could have been in this top five, but, you know, um, they're not. And it's a bit sad because they're both worthy of being here. Um, you know, I thought about I couldn't choose between Topsy Turvy and Naked for Mike Lee. Um, and Terence Davis, you know, Time of the City would have been one of the ones I thought about. Um, uh, you know, uh, but but they're not here, partly because the Deep Blue Sea, I was too involved in that myself to, to vote for that. Because I was on the set quite a lot. So tell us, so tell us about Hunger then. What 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 made it so unanimously so favoured that year? What was what was it? What why did it stand out? Well, Hunger for me is just amazing because it's so it comes out of left field. Because Steve McQueen was a kind of installation artist; he'd hmm. not made a feature film before. Um, and what's astonishing about the beginning of that film is it's just all about imagery. Hardly anybody says a word for ages. Hmm. It starts with you know knuckles in hot water bleeding knuckles in hot water, guys smoking cigarettes in the snow. Um, there's just an astonishing kind of lead-in, which is pure visuality. Uh, and yet later on in the film, we have one of the longest dialogue sequences you'll find in any film where Bobby Sands, played by um, uh, Mike, Michael Fassbender, mm. is, has this long conversation with a priest about what he's doing, doing the hunger strike, because he's playing Bobby Sands, the famous IRA hunger striker. Uh, and, you know, the justification of what he's doing. And this, this scene goes on for a long time. So straight away, McQueen is straining at the edges of what we've come to expect from how feature films work. He's he and Sean Bobbitt, the amazing cinematographer of this film, who is, I think, almost an equal partner mm. in, in what we see, um, is absolutely stretching all those things. As you, you would never expect a film to begin the way this film does. Uh, uh, or indeed proceed in such a visual manner, perhaps until we come across the film I'll talk about later, which is uh, Under the Skin, where yeah. similarly it's kind of unsettling. Well, give, well given, um, given your position with, within the sort of the, 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 the sort of UK film industry, what was what was the anticipation of Steve McQueen's debut feature? Was was it all under wraps, or was it something you were kind of well versed and briefed on? I I didn't know much about what was going on with the film. Mm. Um, at all, I, I I knew Steve slightly because he was someone who would turn up at the Rotterdam Film Festival 
Um, and I occasionally would talk, talk to him about British film in a bar at the Rotterdam Film Festival. Right. But he was then somebody associated with feature film. He was an artist right. who, who happened to go to the film festival nearest the city he lives in, which is Amsterdam. Hmm. Um, and so I got to know him that way. And then for him to come out of left field with this incredible feature film was quite a surprise to me. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I was very, very excited when I saw it the first time. And I thought, wow, this is just a, you know, it's kind of dream debut for somebody coming into feature film, especially somebody coming from that art direction where, you know, the thing about fine artists is they tend to get exactly what they want. And as we know, directors of feature films tend to have battles to get what they want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it was really impressive that, that Steve from the get-go seemed to get what he wanted uh, on the screen and in the script. And do you think, do you think that, to me, though, even though they do get what they want, there is a sense of the they are collaborators still, and I think the best filmmakers are the ones that can draw on the talented people who can make their work achieve, achieve what they want, as it were. Yeah, I think Sean Bobby is absolutely crucial to this film, uh, as indeed are the actors. I mean, I particularly wanted to mention um, the guy that plays the, the main security guard, the man with the bleeding knuckles, uh, Stuart Graham's the actor, playing another character called Ray, by coincidence. <laughs> um, and he is astounding in the film, uh, you know, as good as Fassbinder is. Um, uh, and I think it's, uh, you know, the intensity of this film, uh, being about the Northern Ireland Troubles, uh, uh, a political subject I've always found myself somewhat you know, torn about having nothing to do with it. I've got lots of friends from Northern Ireland. I know what they think. Um, uh, you know, I've been close to when IRA bombs have gone off in London. Mm. So it's, it's a kind of, it's a real subject, but it's in a different place. So I was very reluctant to talk about, you know, uh, the troubles. It's, it, it's a really divisive issue mm. and it'll be a real shame if, Brexit brings it all back again, um, considering that, you know, we've had peace for some considerable time now. No, I but totally I, agree. It's really brilliant of McQueen to choose a, a, a subject like... Go on, so finish your thought there. Just, just because it had really been on the back burner for a while and nobody had been thinking about it for a while because there'd been peace for some time. And he kind of brought it back to remind us how appalling it was. And yeah, well, I, I must admit, my main takeaway from it was he, he managed to, for, for the first time in film that I'd seen, he brought it down to a granular level so you could see people in the trouble rather than the kind of that this, this group versus that group. Yeah. You know, a guy that's got to look under his car every morning to make sure there's not a bomb there. Yeah, that's... That's very real and very domestic, you know. Right then, let's move us on a couple of years to 2010, which is The Arbor, by Cleo, directed by Cleo Barnard. And it's, that's, it's Clio Barnard. Oh, Clio Barnard, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and that is number five. That, was number, that made number five in the 10 for 2010. David Fincher's Social Network was number one. Um, and there was um, another British film in that list. There was Mike Lee's Another Year in 2010. So for you, what, what was important about The Arbor that, that you'd want to draw attention to it over your 21 years? Well, I need to do a disclaimer at the beginning because Clio Bonnard is, is a very good friend of mine. OK. And, and I had known her for a long time before she made this film. OK. Um, so I should say that up front straight mm -hmm. away. Um, but what struck me about this film and what I thought was really astonishing is how innovative it is. 
because she uses this very strange technique where she has interviewed uh, the, the, the children of the playwright Andrea Dunbar, this working class playwright from Bradford, mm-hmm. um, who had written all these incredible plays for the Royal Court and died of a brain hemorrhage at the age of 29 um, and had not maybe been able to be the greatest mother in the world. And uh, these children, you know, she interviewed them in depth whilst doing other things like recreating the plays in the middle of the council estate where which, you know, the plays were drawn from. Hmm. Uh, but in doing so, what she then got actors to do was to, to mouth the real words of the real uh, daughters mm-hmm. in this film. Um, and it's a very peculiar effect. And in a way, it goes back to what I was saying about critics being slightly distanced. This is a, 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 a technique which allows us both to be intimate and slightly distanced at the same time. It's, it's a kind of really brilliant um, way of viewing something so visceral and emotional as the difficult lives that these two daughters have with their, with their brilliant but very uh, disturbed mother right. uh, uh, in this uh, very uh, impoverished setting. Um, and um, I, I found it just the most brilliant formal uh, experience as well as real experience. You know, the, the reality and the, the, the distance was there at the same time. And I don't I can't think of any other technique that allows you to do that. To, yeah. to feel um, emotionally totally involved, but at the same time allows you to to feel a slight separation from they themselves the actual real people so it's it's a very peculiar form of documentary or um because it it isn't fictionalized yeah but, but kind of the layer of ha- having actors do it just gives it a little bit more of a fictional edge to it and um so for me it was the most extraordinary film of that year um and uh british film most extraordinary british film of that mm. year uh, and kind of, um, I have not seen anything like it since, strangely. I mean, uh, it, it has some similarities with some work um, in the fine art field. Um, Gillian Waring, an artist who does some similar things in some of her work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it made yeah. me think of that. But, um, and in fact, in adverts as well, you, uh, she's done. But uh, this particular focus on Andrea Dunbar I mean, it's the most extraordinary kind of form of biopic you could possibly imagine as well, because it's 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 real, but it's also reconstructing um, things that can only happen now. But Andrew Dunbar has been dead a long time. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's a really fascinating way of doing it. And it held me gripped from beginning to end. How, how do you approach works of film when it's somebody you, you know well? And you knew well before the film was made. Because I'm, I'm terrible enough when I've met someone and they ask me, what did you think of a film? But the idea of going in to watch a film with someone I've had a longer relationship with, and it's kind of like I've, I've therefore got to be a judge of it. And given what job you do, you've kind of got no escape from that in a sense. Well, here's the thing. Mm. I don't write film reviews. And, mm. and, and I'm, I'm the editor. So I do film features, which is mm. interviews and, and, and stuff like that. But I don't mm. write film reviews. Mm-hmm. For the very reason that I'm married to a film producer. Okay. You know, Kate Ogborn. And she produced the original film Good Under the Skin that came out in 1997. Mm-hmm. And she had been working with Clio in the past on other projects. And that's how I knew Clio. Mm. 
Um, and ha being married to a, a film producer means that not only am I meeting uh, British filmmakers through my job in interviews, but I'm also occasionally meeting them socially, you know, with my wife when I'm the plus one. Yeah, yeah. So I have relationships with filmmakers and I have to be very careful about it. I try my best not to, I would never write criticism mm. uh, of any of these people. And I try my best to be as upfront as possible uh, about uh, any relationship I might have. Yeah. And, you know, I've managed to do that. I've managed to steer it, you know. Uh, Sorry, go on, continue that thought. I, I just, I've, I've even written about that relationship in, in respect of the Terence Davis's The Deep Blue Sea, which my wife produced and I was on the set for. So I did a sort of set diary of that inside yeah. the town. I made it completely clear what the relationships are and yeah. what they were. So, yeah, no, that, I, can get, I can get that. In I understand like wanting to be on the level, but I just think, I just think on a personal level, when somebody's, regardless of whether you write the criticism, somebody's going to ask you, what do you think? You know, you're having, you're at the dinner party and your friend, the filmmaker says, what do you think? It's kind well, of like, that's the difficult question to me. You know, I, I try to find if, if I have, you know, a problem with a film. Yeah. Uh, I will either say I haven't seen it. <laughs> We've all, we all do that one, Nick. We all do that one. <laughs> no, I, I rarely do that. To, to be honest, <laughs> I mean, I try to find a way of saying, you know, um, something that's positive. Yeah. But actually lets them know where I think that they, they might have been helped. But, I mean, it, it doesn't come up very often, to be honest with you. No, because I, I kind of, I don't do much criticism, but, I do, but I'm, a, I'm a screenwriter as well as, a, well as do this podcast. And, and yeah. uh, now I have an appreciation of how films are made. I get the fact that nobody woke up in the morning and went, let's make a bad film. <laughs> right. And it's two years of somebody's life. Exactly. There's one thing I want young critics starting out to know and understand mm. before they write, you know, having spent an hour and a half in a cinema, write their 500 words tearing somebody to pieces that, you know, you're talking about at least 20 people, two years of their life. Mm. When, so be careful, you know, before you do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is, it is naturally, it's easier to be snidey and merciless Whereas actually, I, I, I don't know about you, but I love, I love the journey of trying to write about a film that maybe I've had a bad reaction to. And then during the process of trying to wrestle with those ideas, I find that my, my view of the film evolves into full-on appreciation. And then I'm celebrating the film by the end of the writing. Yeah, I think that happens quite a lot. And in fact, you know, the more you dig into something that you're thinking about, the more you find um, the, the sort of treasure in it, if you like. Mm. And, and, the, and the, the bits that didn't quite work for you become less important. My, 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 my personal favourite is Legetti that I was shown as sort of a, a, in a classroom situation and I just hated it. Like for the, right. And it's 20 minutes long, so what, you, you can't even get bored watching it. But then as three weeks later, I'm still thinking about it and I'm like, this has had a bigger effect on me than, than, my, than my stupid reaction I had just sat in a classroom watching it. You've just summed up sight and sound in uh, a few seconds. <laughs> Brilliant. Sometimes you read a piece and you're really irritated by it, but you're still thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, let's... As an editor, I feel that way sometimes. I imagine. Uh, now, let's move on to uh, 2013. So your, uh, this is your, your fourth choice. Yeah. 
and we're going to go with, and this is maybe where this is our crossover now between five great British films and, and I've been doing five great British horror films. So this one is Under the Skin, Jonathan Glazer, which was his third film, um, which I, I didn't, I, 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 until we, we, I was preparing for this, I hadn't really spanned the time. And you go 2000, 2000 2004, and then 2013. That's a huge gap between second and third film. But, but for you, what makes it, such a, an important film? Well, first of all, what you just said, I mean, Jonathan is the, the greatest perfectionist you will ever come across. And okay. I think that all, all his films will always take a long time to come to fruition. Is he someone uh, you've interviewed? I have interviewed him and I interviewed him before he made this film. Actually, I did a, a thing for what used to be called the script factory, where I talked to him about all his rock videos. Oh, right. OK. Um, and it was a very engaging conversation uh, and I felt like I'd sort of got to understand him reasonably well and then I have to confess this too that his father worked for Sight and Sound briefly right his father was an old uh, publishing guru um, uh, who knew a lot about um, design and we had some problems about how to change the review setup on Sight and Sound and he came and came in and helped us so I had that connection as well well interesting but, interesting you say that because it is it, as a kind of an aside but under the skin didn't make the BFI 10 for 2013. Um, ju just, uh, Joshua Oppenheimer's uh, fantastical doc, The Act of Killing, was number one. Um, yeah. And in that version, there was a bit of a... In, 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 on, the, on the online version of what, what's put out, uh, there's a note from yourself about your choices, which obviously Under the Skin was include, it was, was kind of in brackets. And you referred to um, ups, Upstream Colour, saying that that one is, uh, really stands for three films, and it's that one. Under the Skin and Spike Jones Hurt. Sometimes with the Sight and Sound poll, there's a sort of overlap problem in mm. that we vote for films that we've seen at film festivals a year before they come out in the UK. Mm -hmm. And that happens quite a lot. And I think what happened with Under the Skin is it fell into one of those gaps where it got half its votes one year and half its votes the next. Ah, OK. Had you put those two lots of votes together, it would have figured very high, I think. Um, I mean, what I love about this film is just the most extraordinary approach to sci-fi you can possibly imagine. And in fact, one of the things I really love about it is I really did not like the novel it's based on. I read the novel and thought that, yeah, the beginning, the sort of film noirish beginning with this woman wandering around, uh, picking people up and uh, disposing of them. Um, uh, that's a spoiler. <laughs> um, <laughs> It, 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 that was good in the novel, but then when it got to the more sci-fi element of it, it just became something that I wasn't interested in. Um, but Jonathan's approach to to it is entirely different and it has the most extraordinary graphic uh, sequences of bizarre spaces uh, and uh, wonderful uh, ideas of how to portray how some alien uh, from somewhere else might kind of uh, go about dealing with dead bodies of humans and taking on elements of them. Uh, I thought it was all really inventive from the first shot onwards. Um, it was startling right the way through, I thought. Um, and I really liked the fact they got Scarlett Johansson, at a, uh, I think, at a sort of peak moment in her career. Mm. See her in a sort of Scottish film. <laughs> it's Scottish in the sense that it's set in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, in a red wig. You know, wandering around with real people, um, because one of the things Jonathan did is to have secret cameras and shoot real people on the streets 
uh, and some of those re-encounters, I believe, are in the film. And there are lots of non-actors in the film. Um, uh, and it's just stunning what he's able to achieve with, mm. with these, these, these techniques. Um, a really unsettling film, a really interesting way of looking at the business of an alien arriving. Very, very different from... Uh, you know, any Spielbergian kind of fantasy you might imagine. Yeah. Uh, very much more real uh, and yet hugely imaginative at the same time. Um, you know, even, you know, even that sort of slight cliche of the alien who comes to slightly understand what it is to be human mm. is handled so well that you don't even notice that it's a kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of a romantic cliche. Um, it's so subtle the way it happens and, and how it happens to her. Um, and yeah, I, 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 and so stark and simple in so many different ways. This film, so kind of. Um, I was going to say it couldn't be more. If you if you weren't if you didn't know, you wouldn't you couldn't put Sexy Beast and Under the Skin next to each other and go. Obviously, that's the same filmmaker. No, you couldn't. Not without. You know, having lots of the other work that he's done for ad yeah. adverts and music videos in between, then you'd see the connections, I think. But but uh, you're right, as two separate feature films, yeah, you cannot see how they they originate from the same person. I think you can face that. Hold on a sec. There was just the five minutes are up, but which before before you finished was interesting to read in your in your little little note in the 2013 wrap up that you saw you you saw Glazer's film as having the feeling of a future classic about empathy as a virus, which I thought was a fairly astute observation, because six years on, like I can say, I can testify that it's now become, certainly for British horror film fans, part of the canon. It has become that future classic. Well, I'm really pleased to hear that. Uh, I don't count myself as in the horror fraternity necessarily. Mm. I've always had brilliant experts like Kim Newman and Mark Camo <laughs> and others to deal with that territory more amply than I could ever do. Mm. Um, uh, but I'm really pleased to hear that. Yeah, that's great. Well, look, we'll get to move on to your fifth and final film, which is a brand a brand new film, relatively speaking. It's, it's one from your 21st year. It's Joanne, Joanne, Joanna Hogg's uh, The Souvenir. Um, Hogg at her most transparent and vulnerable, according to uh, your, your scribe, Simran Hans. So do you want to talk about it from, from your point of view? Certainly, um, this is, it's kind of really brilliant counterpoint in some ways to nil by mouth, because this is about very upper crust people. Mm. Um, and in fact, one of the things that British cinema is kind of scared of is dealing with the very posh. Uh, they'll do it in costume dramas, but the, it seems like the industry is terrified of dealing with people like that. In the present, you only get sort of caricatures of them. Um, yeah. You don't really get... Um, their real lives and this is a, a semi-autobiographical film about a young woman filmmaker from a very well-heeled background uh, played by newcomer Anna Swinton Burr who's Tilda Swinton's daughter and her performance is astonishing I mean really just tremendously open uh, you know warm uh, uh, and and you're you're sort of with her immediately as soon as she's on the screen, yeah. you feel that you're part of her life. And she has this bizarre affair. She meets a guy at a party who's also posh, says he works from the foreign office. And she's kind of 
hooked on him quite quickly. He's, he very, very much challenges all her assumptions. She's trying to make a film about working class people in Sunderland, and he kind of attacks her uh, for saying that she's not really true to who she is and what she's about. And she's getting similar attacks from the kind of tutors at her film school. This is very much a kind of film that, that yo-yos between this flattened Knightsbridge, which she owns, mm. and this film school that she goes to, which um, has been filmed in, in Norfolk, um, but is probably based on something like the National School of Film and Television or one of those places. Um, and uh, uh, over time, this relationship is very cute. It's very nicely handled. It's very old fashioned in the sense that it's, it, it, it becomes sexual, but not for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and it's handled sort of very romantically, like a 1930s film to a degree. And there's a lot of kind of incidental, quite nice, uh, amusing humour of, of a kind that we don't often see. It's all beautifully handled. Um, but in fact, he, he's, he's a slightly sinister presence uh, in the sense that he's got problems which eventually come to uh, our, our, we come to understand. And this begins to concern uh, Honor Swinton Burns' character's mother, mm. uh, who's played by her mother, Tilda Swinton, as a real sort of... Um, county lady, a sort of Sloan um, concerned mother uh, with a sort of silver bun hairstyle. <laughs> Quite startling, unlike anything she's played before. Um, and I just found it very, very realistic. Uh, I've known uh, lots of people in this sort of milieu myself. Um, I, I, and I also found it very touching and very romantic. And there, you know, there are moments when it, they have their fancy uh, sort of swish moments where they go to Venice and uh, and they, they, they have meals in fancy hotels, but it's all handled with a certain sort of kind of self-deprecation, a, a little bit of, and, and there's no, nothing snide about it. These yeah. people are face value. They're, they're not, you know, there's no one kind of smirking at them, which is what tends to happen with the posh in much other British cinema. Um, so I, I, I think also Jana Hogg in the four films she's made is I think one of our most, uh, um, most sort of brilliant uh, and, and all-encompassing filmmakers. She's got the potential, I think, to make really big cinema uh, and really interestingly, distinctively a cinema that uh, from herself in the way that Scorsese's films are to him. And of course, yeah. he is an executive producer of this film, so there is a direct connection there. Okay. Um, uh, you know, I think he's, she's a genuine kind of uh, quirky English voice um, in the way that, say, Michael Powell of the Powell and Pressburger duo was in the 1940s. She's, wow. she's got kind of distinction. She's, you know, uh, on her way to that kind of level, I think. Why, why do you think that's the subject matter so difficult to portray well in, in UK cinema? I think, you know, class is the big difficulty in, in Britain because um, people are so embarrassed about it. You know, people... You know, all of us know that terrible thing where, you know, you open your mouth and people know almost the door you, you, you live in. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Street you live in, which is not true anywhere else in the world, but it's true here. Um, and so somebody like Joanna, who, you know, it's the question, she comes from a very posh background. Um, I, I know that myself, you know, the, when you first hear the voices of those people and you see the sort of milieu, I can feel the hackles, my own hackles rise, <laughs> you know, 
yeah. and then well hang on a minute you know these people exist in the uk there's quite a number of them yeah not, yeah, yeah not many people make cinema about them and you know joanna's really good if you're archipelago is another one of her films which is just astonishing and it's 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 interesting isn't it that that it would be difficult it would be not it'd be difficult to portray because the flip side of this is you get you get somebody from an upper class background doing what what is the horrible term poverty porn and yeah. and that's more dishonest than than in a sense than than maybe of trying to reflect on their own lives absolutely of course it is and you know um i've been running an auteurist magazine for 21 years and um and auteurism for all its flaws it's not a perfect system but you know when you get filmmakers making things that direct from their personal experience that's the kind of cinema i like best Brilliant. Well, look, let's just review the five then. So your five great British films over the last 21 years were Nil by Mouth from 97, Hunger from 2008, The Arbor from 2010, Under the Skin 2013, and 2019's The Souvenir. Um, I, uh, that's a, it's a fair, it's a good breadth, breadth of films, and I've not seen The Souvenir, so I will, I will be endeavouring to sort that out, having had this conversation about it. Um, but what, what, and this obviously we, we come together because this is the, sort of an end of a chapter for you in terms of your own your own involvement in film. So so what's what's next for you? Well, I'm trying to write a fictional memoir, which I can't really talk too much about. Um, and it's got nothing to do with the job I've been doing. And in fact, people will find it a very strange book for me to be writing. Yeah. But alongside that, I will be also writing some film books, which I can't detail right now. But yeah. um, there will be. And I hope to continue to contribute to Sight and Sound. Certainly that's the plan at the moment. Brilliant. Well, look, when, when, when your film books are, uh, are in publication, then we'd love to have you back on the podcast. Thank you very much. I'd love to come back. Well, look, all it gives me to say is thank you very much for your time on the podcast. Cheers. You too. Thank you. The Brickflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly... There's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.